Evidence and Answers. How do we reach a new generation for Christ? The message never changes, but the methods do. How is the millennial generation unique? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Danny Lehman was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Zucran. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear any of this message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen now as evangelist Danny Lehman explains the unique culture of the millennials and practical ways to reach this group with the gospel of Christ. Lord, we ask you to help us today keep our minds and our hearts soft and attentive and so we might be disciples and we know that a disciple is a learner and we want to ask you to help us Lord to learn about this new generation called the millennials that we might know how we might reach them with the good news of the gospel in Jesus name amen okay in full disclosure I want to give you how I came up with the material I'm going to give you today I've been working with youth in a ministry called youth with a mission for the last 33 34 years so I've been with young people since the 70s, well actually I guess that'd be the 80s, and I got saved as a young person myself. I was an elder in my church when I was 22 and have been watching youth ministry all this time and that's my own experience and I travel and mostly talk to young people. My average crowd is a school of youth with a mission workers that are between 18 and 24 usually. Some of them are getting up there in age like 30 or so but for the most part younger people. I also have been reading several books, and I want to recommend these to you. One is called The Millennials. This is by Tom Rayner and Jess Rayner. Tom is a boomer like me, and his son is a millennial generation. I'll define that in just a minute. Excellent book, The Millennials. This guy was interviewed in USA Today. He's an expert on the subject of what's this generation all about, and I'm going to talk to you about that in just a bit. There's another book written by, if you've ever heard of John Maxwell, the famous Christian leadership teacher, one of his disciples is a guy named Tim Elmore. And Tim has written a book called Generation IY. Now, it's interesting what he does is the normal generational breakdown, according to the sociologists, is you've got those born between 1904 and 1925. This is what we would call the GI generation. It's what Tom Brokaw called in his book, the greatest generation, those who fought World War II, those who liberated Auschwitz, our heroes of the faith, the Audie Murphys, uh, George Bush I and so forth, uh, who, who fought in the war and so forth. And right on their heels are those born between 25 and 45, and that's what we call either the silent generation or the builder generation. These were those, a little bit of an overlap with the other generation, but they helped build America in the 1950s, and they they got us really strong. This was the Ozzie and the Harriet and uh, so forth generation there of, of parents at that time. Following on with them were those of us like myself that are baby boomers. A lot of us here tonight are baby boomers. Boomers were born, and appropriately, boom, after World War II, all the soldiers came back, they all got married and had families, and so you had this 
boom in our population of about 77 million of us that were born between 1945 and 1965, roughly from when the Allies landed at Normandy and when the Beatles landed at JFK Airport. 1964. But then after that, there was a slump in a generation, partly because of the abortion situation, but other reasons in which there was a generation called Generation X, named after a guy named Douglas Copeland who wrote a fictional book, but somehow that caught on. So they called them the Gen Xers, or what we might call the Baby Busters. And they were from about 1965 to about 1979. And then the generation we're going to talk about today is the, what we would call the Millennial Generation in basic 20-year increments from 1980 to, to the year 2000. This guy has the opinion that things are moving so fast and changing so fast now, and the generations are flipping so fast that we no longer can say, well, a biblical generation is 40 years. You're talking about a group of people that have certain cultural, sociological affinity with one another that the whole culture changes within a few years. And so he says the Y generation slash millennial generation is broken up into two parts, those born between 80 and 90 and those born between 90 and the year 2000, what he calls the IY generation. And he said the IYs are much different from the Y generation, much different from the Gen Xers or the Boomers and on back. So, and then these two books... One is by a guy named David Kinneman. David Kinneman has taken leadership. He's a young guy, about 38. He has taken leadership of the Barna Group. He's been responsible for 350,000 interviews. These guys are statistical freaks. But all four of these books, coming from different perspectives, basically say the same thing. So when I say 94% of these people are overwhelmed in their lifestyles, this is coming from these books. Both of these guys together wrote a best-selling book about five years ago called Unchristian. Very unpleasant book to read, but I had to read it. So it basically says the way young people view us, evangelical Christians, Bible-believing churches, they view us as homophobic, intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, warmongering, right-wing, fill-in-the-blank. They have a negative view of the church, and that's why they don't come anymore, and that's why we have this incredible dropout rate by those between 18 and 30. So those two guys individually wrote two books that are a little bit more positive. This one's not that much positive, but it's called You Lost Me. And this is, again, a further we young people are telling you how you lost us. Now, of course, we can get all proud and say, well, it's not my fault you left the church. Uh, you should have come in here and sat there in the pew like everybody else, and we're not going to put on a dog and a pony show just to keep you in church. So lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So if you want, obviously, we don't want to do that. We want to say, why do you have this viewpoint of us? Why do you think we're homophobic? Well, because you're down on gay people. Well, okay, let's talk about that. And the only way we're going to be able to break through some of these caricatures is to show them a different caricature and for us to be able to straighten out people's conceptions of us, and hopefully we're not all of the above that I just mentioned. This one's called The Next Christians by Gabe Lyons. As I think about it, a real good interview, actually it's a series of six DVDs you can get, or you can get it on YouTube. Gabe Lyons was interviewing Chuck Colson. This is worth its weight in gold because Gabe Lyons is a young guy, but he hasn't given up on the gospel. We had a movement about 15 years ago in America called the Emerging Church Movement or the Emergent Church Movement. It took off like a rocket ship and crashed like a rocket ship. It just didn't go very far, primarily because they tried to change the wine as well as the wineskin. 
And if you look through church history, wineskins come and go and they can change. Buildings come and go, small groups, you know, liturgy, wild Pentecostals, crunchy Presbyterians, it doesn't matter. All kinds of different Christians. But the fact is that we can't change the wine. And that's why, the, in my opinion, the emerging church thing crashed so fast. But the emerging church was asking good questions. It's just that the cure was worse than the disease. So now we're in this conundrum of we've got mega churches that are what we call seeker-friendly churches or user-friendly churches, seeker-sensitive churches. Then you have your doctrinal churches and then you have your community churches and then you have what they call missional churches and then you have you know, all kinds of different churches. But unfortunately, you can't really say, well, this is what's really working over here. And whenever I run into these, not just these guys, but anybody that's into youth ministry, I say, can you give me a model? Can you give me, where is it really working? And there are pockets up in the Northwest. There's a guy named Judas Smith who has a ton of people, young people in his church until Mark Driscoll had his problems. There was a ton of young people in his church. And there are pockets here and there. But one of the things about this generation is that they are diverse. They are, they're not unilateral. Back when I was 20 years old, all of my friends smoked dope. All of us had bell-bottom jeans. All of us had t-shirts. We were all against the Vietnam War. We all were the same. We were a monolithic block. We changed history. We changed, this is how you and I got Bill and Hillary Clinton. We produced them by our generation. We wanted to rock the world. We wanted to change everything, and we did. Some for the good, some not so good. Just having drums in a church was unheard of 50 years ago. We changed that because we had voting block material. We, had, we were a monolithic culture. This generation, all bets are off. This generation doesn't like to be branded on any Presbyterian, Baptist, Episcopal. They don't want to be branded with that. And the one thing that's interesting about the You Lost Me book is the way we respond to young people when they leave the church is we try to create a relevant, cool, you know, smoke bombs and strobe lights and cool youth groups and things like that. And yet they say consistently in the interviews, we just want to see some real Christianity. We want to see parents who love each other. We want to see people who care about the poor. We want to see people who don't snipe at one another over the airwaves or over the internet or over Facebook and so forth. We want to see Jesus-like. We're not stupid. We read what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We want to see it lived out. And what we give them is, well, do you believe in this particular viewpoint on the rapture? And if you don't, you're not welcome around here. And that kind of stuff in the name of unity is not what brings unity. Because they want to see transformation, not just information. They want to have experiential Christianity as well as an explanatory Christianity. Now we can say they should believe it because it's true whether they experience it or not. That's true, but that's not the way they think. They want to experience God. Anyway, getting ahead of myself here. I want to read just a couple of verses out of Acts chapter 17. A little bit of background. Paul the Apostle said in Acts 17 2, or Luke said about Paul, his custom was to go into a synagogue and reason with the Jews in the synagogue out of the scriptures. In other words, the scriptures were his interest door. So he would say, you guys talk about uh, the Messiah. Well, here's some verses on the Messiah, and I want to suggest that Jesus is the Messiah. And they go, oh, and they would get what he said and would either accept or reject the Messiah. Very simple. But then he moved down to this place at the second half of Acts chapter 17 called Athens. And Paul was apparently surprised that the same method that he used to reach the Jews in the synagogues was just not working among the Greeks. So he gets down to Athens in Acts chapter 17, and it says that he left his friends 
While Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed. You should be, and I should be, and we are greatly distressed. There is such a dropout rate of young people in our churches. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in most churches that I go to, there's a lot of gray heads in those churches, and there's not a whole lot of especially 20-somethings. You'll see teenagers that are there with their parents. You will see hot youth groups that are doing good stuff and getting people into the Word, and uh, you will see boomers and maybe Gen Xers here and there, but there's a dearth, and this is not just me noticing it as I go to different churches. This is backed up by the facts. There has been a slow decline of church attendance ever since the boomer generation, and you can blame it on a lot of things. We had a little bit of a reprieve from this back in the 70s and 80s when we had the, when the Jesus movement, you had the charismatic movement, you, have, you had certain things that happened within the church, kept things going, but the future does not look good unless we have a full-blown revival. And I want to suggest that that revival is going to have to happen among young people. It always has. Every revival in history has been worked out among the youth. Jesus, most of Jesus' disciples were young people. David was a young person. Joseph was a young person. Jesus himself started his ministry at a relatively young age. So the thing that we're facing with our new generation is equivalent of what Paul faced here in Acts chapter 17. When you go to the University of Hawaii campus, whereas I used to witness on the Manoa campus years ago, and you'd walk up to somebody, give them a tract, and they'd say, what's this? And you'd say, well, it's four spiritual laws or whatever. And they'd say, well, how do I know this is true? And I would whip out of my backpack a Josh McDowell book on evidence that demands a verdict or more than a carpenter. And then we would discuss the truth or the non-truth about the tract and try to lead them to Christ. Nowadays, all bets are off because many people, as has been pointed out last night, many people don't even believe in absolute truth. I've had young people look me in the eye and say, I believe in you, Danny. I believe Jesus is true. And I say, great, then let's follow Jesus. But they also believe that Buddha is true and they believe that Hinduism is true and they believe some parts of atheism is true and they certainly believe evolution is true. Everything is true and yet they do not see it as a contradiction. This is because there's a way of thinking and I don't want to blame everything on the devil But the Bible does say we are to cast down imaginations and every lofty thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we need to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Pat put that up on the board yesterday, but it's a great verse for this generation. Anyway, Paul gets down to Athens and he has a rude awakening. He's greatly distressed to see the city full of idols, verse 16. Verse 17, so he reasoned. The Greek word reason there is the word we get dialogue. It's the word dialogos. It's a conversation between people. He's not preaching at them. So he reasoned in the synagogue with who? The Jews and the God-fearing Greeks who understood all about the Bible as an interest store. And in the marketplace, day by day, by those who happen to be there. Verse 18. But a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, plural. They said this because, now look at this. They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what is wrong with preaching about Jesus and the resurrection? (laughs) Nothing. That's what we should preach. But somehow he was preaching it in a way that didn't land with the people. Because they thought he was a babbler, and this is a Greek word that has to do with a bird that was down in Athens. It had to do with, uh, metaphorically, it meant a phony philosopher. The Greeks were into thinking, especially the Stoics were the thinkers, the Epicureans were the feelers. 
The epic, it was a famous Epicurean who once said, party on dude. Oh, no, that was Wayne's World. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, no, it was, no, it was a famous Epicurean philosopher who said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. In other words, let's party, let's have a good time. That describes a lot of what we're talking about in our generation. We're talking about a generation of American youth who have, they feel like they're entitled to have a good time. They are not supposed to be, go through suffering. They wouldn't want to read Os Guinness's book about faith in the darkness because they don't want to go in the darkness. And they, in a sense, live in a fantasy world because they've never experienced persecution. And what Oz said earlier about they've, a lot of them have never been sick or seen much suffering, all that adds to the... Um, lack of concern about eternal things that they have. The Stoics were the thinkers, the Epicureans were the feelers, and yet when Paul preached Jesus in the resurrection, it went over their heads. So if you read the rest of the chapter, he goes up to the Areopagus, he talks about their unknown God and the unknown God altar. Then he quotes Homer, the Greek poet. Then he quotes Epimenides, who was an Epicurean poet. And then he quoted Aratus, who was a Stoic poet. And he used the pagan writings to go back to the true God. And then at the end, he got back and preached the gospel of Christ. But he had to lay a foundation. He had to walk through an interest door. Now, back in the 70s, one of the things that was an interest door was contemporary music, electric guitars, drums, and things like that. We broke through. You don't have to wear a suit and a tie to go to church anymore. You can wear anything you want. Lots of these things were broken through back in the 70s. And this generation today is, they basically want to see reality, they want to see authenticity, and it's up to us to give it to them. So part of this next diatribe is going to be a challenge on us to try to meet the needs of this generation, and it's also going to be to try to give us an understanding on the way that they think. And I got a lot of that backed up here in my uh, research books here. Ten characteristics of the millennial generation, born between 80 and 2000. Number one, they're an overwhelmed generation. You are not the only one that notices how fast things change. I wrote a book about four years ago, and I used an illustration of my BlackBerry became my something, and that, uh, nobody has Blackberries anymore. Everybody's got smartphones. If I wrote a book today and talked about smartphones, there'd probably be some other phone out by the time the book got published. So things are changing. 94% of these folks say that they're overwhelmed in their lifestyle. 44% of them say they are depressed on a regular basis, and this is much higher than previous generations. And 10% of them have considered suicide in the last year. Serious consideration of suicide in the last year. Noise, busyness, talk, words, volume, speed, internet, Facebook, chat rooms, video games. They average seven and a half hours in front of some screen in any given day. Seven and a half hours. And all of it is new information. And it's coming in from CNN. And it's coming in from Fox News. And it's coming in from Taylor Swift. And it's coming in from here. And here's the Grammys. And, here's, and all of these things are just overwhelming them so that they're having a hard time dealing with real life. 60% of them, when they leave their parents' house, have serious difficulty adjusting to the real world. They've been told, you are special, you are just, you're, you're just wonderful, and so forth, and they are given trophies even when they lose. There's actually a book out called, When the Trophy Kids Grow Up. 
<laughs> written by a secular guy, but he's just saying we're not doing kids any favors to present them with a bunch of fantasy. We've got to give them reality so they can be prepared for the real world. Back in the old days, the father who was the, the, the blacksmith would teach his son to be a blacksmith, and they would pass it on through the family, and there would be a work ethic and all that. We had the Protestant Reformation, which talked about the Protestant work ethic and so forth. Well, a lot of that is our fault because we're babying our kids and we're actually contributing to their overwhelmed lifestyle. Number two, this generation is diverse. I work at a university called University of the Nations, University. And I could tell you, among this generation, there's a lot more versity than there is uni. <laughs> and just trying to get everybody to believe in one thing, you know. I mean, do you want white rice or brown rice? We can split that up into 30 different opinions. And so it's a diverse type of a thing. And, and of course, the new tolerance is a part of that that Pat talked about last night. And the worldwide connection they have with the internet just increases their diversity. So they can be a charismatic, a Pentecostal, a Presbyterian, a Buddhist, a, a New Ager, and they can look you right in the eye and say there's no contradiction because it's all spiritual. Number three, this is a good thing about this generation. They are an optimistic generation. They want to change the world and they believe that they can. We boomers, come on, we got to wait, we got we to admit this, we were a tad bit selfish. We wanted everything for us, and so we were hippies for a while, then we became yuppies, and then we took over Wall Street, and then we destroyed the country. So we really were going for it, but we were selfishly oriented. This generation, and I can tell you from dealing with 21st century man like I do, a lot of kids that don't even know Jesus really want to make changes in the world. They really want to see the world change. So they're frustrated with us when we don't care about the poor, and we just want to give tracts to the poor. It's the equivalent of your house is burning down and two people are up at the second floor and they're burning and we throw them a tract. No, you don't throw them a tract. You get them a ladder and you get them down to save their lives, you know. And so young people are kind of frustrated with kind of a pie-in-the-sky kind of a mentality. Now, I'm an evangelist and I believe in eternal life, but I'm saying you've got to go to where the people are or you're going to fire over the bow and not hit the ship, which is what Paul did in Athens until he got a little bit more wisdom as he went on. They love that little quote out of the Steve Jobs movie where he's trying to talk the marketing guy from Pepsi to come join him at Apple. And he says, you want to spend the rest of your life making sugared water or do you want to change the world? And they love that quote, you know, because they really want to change the world. Now, the positive thing about this from my perspective is when I'm dealing with young people in a classroom of missionaries, I can look at them and say, you really can change the world. Let me tell you about William Carey. Let me tell you about Hudson Taylor. Let me tell you about Zinzendorf. Let me tell you about Wesley. Let me tell you about Finney. And to just give them historical perspective that you can change the world, and that fits right into their optimism, which is a good thing about this generation. Number four, they're not religious, but they're spiritual. They look at us, now this is just a general characteristic, they look at us as a passing relic of history, that Christianity, yes, uh, the founding fathers are Christians, we know all that, but we're in an evolutionary process now, and now you can't, Danny, come on, are you going to tell me that Muslims, a billion Muslims, almost a billion Hindus, 350 million Buddhists, they're all a little lost, right? Because they don't believe in your Jesus. Come on. This is the 21st century. We've got to be a little bit more. And that kind of what we call syncretistic thinking is a stronghold in the way young people think. And it's really not their fault. They were raised in this era where everything changes and everything's different and everything's okay. A lot of us think that the world is loaded with atheists. It's not. 85% of the world is religious. 15% of the world are either atheists or agnostics. 
If you don't know the difference, an atheist knows there's no God, and an agnostic just doesn't know. <laughs> so an agnostic is kind of a humble atheist, you know, so you've got to give him a break. It's easier to witness to an agnostic than to an atheist because the atheist already has got it figured out. But 75% of them consider themselves to be spiritual. And yet, on surveys, they fill out surveys that 60% of them say that they're Christians. But when you ask them questions like, what does your Christian life mean to you? The kind of questions you and I would ask. Uh, are you born again? Uh, has your lifestyle changed? Uh, do you try to abstain from sin? Uh, do you give this? Do you, do you love Jesus? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? These kind of it, it all gets real muddy because they see spirituality as this a big beef stew of all the religious things that are going together. I was watching my friend Ray Comfort is a good friend of Kirk Cameron, and they went on the Oprah show one day. Now, don't ask me why I was watching the Oprah show. I, I, I don't make it my regular TV fare. But Oprah had these guys on, and they brought Nick Vajokic in as a guest. Now, if you know Nick, he's got no arms and no legs, and he's a fascinating character, loves the Lord. And, of course, because of his handicap and because of him, he's got the whole audience captivated. Oprah says, tell us your story. How do you deal with this, Nick? And Nick says, it's because of my faith in Jesus Christ. He really laid out the gospel very clear. And Oprah was just clapping and laughing and, and seemed to be totally into it. And I, went, I said to my wife, I said, maybe Oprah got saved. I mean, she was born in a Baptist church back in Baltimore. Maybe, you know. Then I wa- and I don't know why I was doing this a couple of weeks later, but I watched her again a couple of weeks later, and Deepak Chakra was one of her guests. And she has the same smile and the same clap when Deepak Chakra is given all this new age stuff about auras and positive and negative energy and God is everywhere and everywhere is God and all that kind of stuff, kind of what we would call Rama Lama. And Oprah didn't see any, any contradiction. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>